When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The BMW i4 M50. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Experience the power of over 500 horses stampeding at a whisper as BMW M-engineered handling takes you through every twist and turn. The complete suite of intuitive technology keeps you connected. The pure performance keeps your heart racing. The BMW i4 M50. Silence has never said so much. BMW, the ultimate electric driving machine. I know you'll be alright Even when times get hard And you feel like you're in the dark You will see Just how beautiful life can be When you soften your heart You can finally start To live your truthiest life Hello, hello, and welcome back to The Truthiest Life. Happy Friday if you're listening the day this podcast is going to be released. If you're listening at a later point, well, I hope you're just having a great day in general then. I'm your host, Lisa Haim, and if you're new to this podcast on The Truthiest Life, we talk about life's hardest moments with people who live their lives truly, authentically, oftentimes because of what they've gone through. So they're really leaning into that hard stuff, and they're coming out more themselves than ever before. And I think this gives us all a little bit of hope in those hard moments to know that we're not just going to be okay, we're going to be who the world needs us to be because of these moments. So this episode coming up is with my dear friend Biet. She gets into all of her history. She's an open book. She's actually written a book where you could read all about it. And she talks about her entire life, which involves drug abuse, loss of her baby, to a ton of trauma that she experienced. And Biet really shares how she's navigated this world and become not only sober, not only in this, you know, better place, I should say, but she's also a world famous meditation leader. And she's fused her passions of music and meditation together to create experiences that really help other people navigate their lives more comfortably. And you'll see here in this episode, but Biet's life, I mean, at least for me, is drastically different than how I grew up. She grew up with a shaman of a father and really just lived in poverty, actually not so far from where I currently live. And I think it's just such a good reminder to recognize when we meet people that everybody has walked a different journey in a different pair of shoes. 
And these life experiences are going to shape us into being different people. And rather than judging each other for being different, maybe we could just take a moment to recognize that we don't know somebody's journey and who they are is who they are. And accepting that really crowds out the judgment that I think we often put in there to kind of displace the fear of what we don't understand, if that makes any sense. But I think this world needs more compassion than anything else. So I'll leave it at that to just, you know, with all these episodes, stay open-minded. And hopefully that carries into your personal life where you meet people or see people or you notice your own judgments. For me, it really has. It's made me a version of myself that I'm much more proud to call my friend, myself. And yeah, it's just life is hard for all of us. And I think we we forget that through the static pictures we see on Instagram and social media. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode. Today we have Biet Simkin on. She is a lot of things. She's a world-famous meditation guru, an amazing singer. Highly recommend checking her out on Spotify. She's also an author of Don't Just Sit There, one of my all-time favorite spiritual meditation books, but really just spiritual in general. And the thing about Biet is she's not your average meditation leader. The fact that she revolutionized the way many see meditation simply says a lot about her. She recognizes that meditation is not just sitting on the mat. Biet has gone through a lot to get where she is today, from food stamps to loss of her entire family, even a baby daughter. Biet is someone who has been through it all and can conceptualize the process of inner work and give us the tools to apply it to our own lives in a way that is very different than how we've ever been taught before. That was pretty choppy, but hopefully people get it that you have been through a monster of a life. And really, though, your story isn't about what you've been through, which we will cover, but it's about how you've developed tools and a new lens to see the world, which is so different than every other meditation teacher, spiritual leader out there. So welcome. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to start with a quote of yours that quite literally rocked my socks. (laughs) Oh, yay. You said, no one needs you to be enlightened. So don't pretend to be. Just figure out who you are and be that person. That's it. Mm. It blows your own mind. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, oh, right. (laughs) Because so easy to forget, isn't it? That is the premise of this podcast, The Truthiest Life. It's about not being anyone other than who you are. I want to ask you what inspired you to say that. So I'll give you a moment to think on that. But I think your reaction was just so beautiful to your own words. (laughs) Because it's not my words. Like nothing I say that's really worth anything has ever been said by me. So it's it's all coming from a different place. And I think it's a place that we're all part of. And so I think of Viet as sort of like the carrier pigeon for the thing that all of us are. And I happen to be a very, very good carrier pigeon, but I'm most certainly not the actual message. And so whenever I actually say something that's real, I'm surprised too. I'm standing there being like, wow, the shit that comes out of my mouth is fucking amazing, you know, because I'm like, I didn't say it. Now I know when I'm talking because it's just repetitive stuff. It's old stories I've said before. It's like, whatever, like I'm having one of those days where I'm just kind of like wheeling through. That's me. But 
then there's source. And to me, the question of life is how much access to that shit can we have in our lives? Well, I think that that's just an incredible out the door preview of what people are going to get from this conversation. Because when you first said, I didn't say that, my reaction was, oh, who quoted that? Let me give them credit. But really what you were saying is you see yourself as a vehicle to deliver words, but that's not you. You consider Biet the person that's on repeat and maybe your own stories, but this inner wisdom within you is not actually you? Yeah, it's not me at all. That's why when people hear it, they're like so in love with me because they're just hearing themselves. There's something that we all are. It's one thing. And then there's Biet and there's Lisa and there's everyone else. And everyone has an opportunity to tune in to that one truth and then be a carrier of that truth in their way, whether it be through science, whether it be through nutrition, whether it be through modeling, whether it be through music. It doesn't matter which way you are the architecture of that frequency, but that's the best that we can do. And, you know, there's a, there's a chapter in the book about that. It's called The Law of the Beholder. And it's all about how your life is just trying to happen. And you're like a weird person getting in front of the projection, like the projector machine, trying to project your beautiful life and getting in front of it and being like, hey, look at me, look at me. And it's like, get the fuck out of the way so that <laughs> the projector can, you know, project this beautiful movie. Uh, so, okay. Didn't think that's where we'd start this conversation, but I do want to pause there because obviously Obviously, most people don't see life through your lens. So when they say something profound, which is a beautiful thing to have happen, and there's an applaud, which there is when somebody provides value, they kind of perk up a little bit like, oh, I'm valuable in this world. And that becomes their identity and they feed off of that. That's a very natural thing. But what I've heard from you so far, which is so like, again, a new way to think about things is I don't even think you're meaning to, but you're avoiding your ego or you're avoiding developing an ego by seeing yourself as two people. And it's not for any reason other than that's what it is to you. This isn't a strategy to you. This is how you view yourself. Well, yeah, but I suffer from having an ego myself. It's just I can recognize who's talking. So for instance, I was just in the shower an hour ago and I just posted on something on Instagram and it was so profound. Like I like texted it to my best friends and I was like, this is fucking brilliant. And then I was in the shower and I was thinking about how brilliant I was. And then <laughs> <laughs> the voice was like, this is your ego right now. And it could, you could feel when I, and I just took a breath and returned to my soul. And what I could feel was that when I'm in my ego, when a thought like, wow, I'm brilliant occurs, there's an irritation that's going through my entire body at that moment. And the reason for that is because I've already separated myself from others. And my mode of apparatus is really just to be superior to everyone. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, okay, it was a brilliant post, but go back to, you know, sit the fuck down you're a servant of something. You're very lucky to have had that come through you today, but it's not fucking yours. Just like none of your money is yours. Your kid isn't yours. Your husband's not yours. Even your body, like it's all going to go. Ah, there it is. Okay, because I was like, what do you mean my my husband's not mine? My body's not mine? What <laughs> you mean is kind of, in my words, attached to nothing that can be taken. Is that correct? Well, it's like I see it as I'm not religious, but I see it as God's. It belongs to God. Mm -hmm. My body belongs to God. This life, my talents belong to God. My husband belongs to God. My baby belongs mm -hmm. to God. And I'm just here to take really good care of all that. But the truth is, is that when I'm 90 or whenever the fuck they take me, I ain't going to be taking care of it no more, you know? And that, in a nutshell, is presence. 
Do you realize that? Yeah. Well, do you realize the opposite? Do you realize how most people live their lives is in pursuit of keeping things that are never actually theirs? Oh, yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. You have like a super unique way of communicating too. So like I, f- I sometimes find myself like when you text me, like I, I find myself rereading it like 17 times <laughs> and you're like, what does she even need? You know? And then I just, I'm like, but it's text from Lisa. So like, it's not going to make sense right away. You just got to give it some really? time. Really? You know? Yeah. Cause you're like an alien. Like the way you communicate, I've never met anyone who communicates the way you do, the way you <laughs> Wait, really? like share. It's so true. It's very like elusive. That's how I feel and, about like, you. I think I'm like right what? to the point. You're elusive. Yeah. No, no, you're a really magical creature. It's always just like, what? <laughs> well, it's not really me. If it's a good thing, I guess what you're saying, it's not really me. It's my... It's a good it's thing. A, okay, then it's not me is what I've learned. Because for a moment, you saying that, I was I was getting excited about myself. But that is the, the vehicle. Okay, anyway. So you have a really wild story, and it involves probably more individual events than anyone I know. So I know a lot of people who have been through hard stuff like, you know, loss of this, addiction, whatever it is, you know, go through the list of the guests we've had on at least so far. And you have just about every single one of them besides for our first episode, which was attempted murder. And I hope you never get that one. (laughs) But you have a, 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 <laughs> you you have we'll see what happens with this election <laughs> right we're we're recording the day the week of election week so yeah you you have it all so let's just start from the beginning of how you were born into this world you know i was born i i made a story out of it for a very long time because the truth is there's a lot of beauty to my life i come from a very aristocratic family even though i was born into complete poverty of immigrants just having moved to the states literally a month before i was born and so it was a really weird mixture and the mixture was living in basically not the projects but like the tenements of one of the most you know like sketchy neighborhoods in in queens and like you know poverty like living in a one bedroom apartment with like roaches and like mice and really like poor but at the same time we had like a grand piano in the living room Mm. you know so and we had like every book like when I was nine my father gifted me like Sigmund Freud and Carl Gustav Jung to read because of course that's like what you give your nine-year-old child to consume at that Mm -hmm. age so it was just like a really weird and so what I did for the first I don't know 28 years of my life before my father died was just kind of really buy into the story that my life was amazing because I had this grand piano like who and because I had all this culture and I was you know listening to Johann Sebastian Bach at the age of seven and reading Proust like who has these opportunities so when I blotted out what was really happening which is that my mom dropped dead when I was six no one brushed my hair I always wore mismatched socks I didn't go to school 50% of the year and somehow managed to get B's because I'm that manipulative <laughs> not because i'm a good student not because i'm a good test taker i'm a i'm a psycho i'm an artsy kid i'm an artist you know so the only way i made it through school is by manipulation and charm of which i have quite a bit and then it just got worse and worse my whole family dropped dead while i was growing up it was just me my father who was an awakened shaman for anyone who's listening and you know imagining losing a parent and then having an awakened shaman as your only parent It would be like, hey, dad, I'm hungry. He's like, but what is real hunger, really? We want to look to the evidence of the soul. You know, it was just like mayhem. Like I was like, I have no security. We have no health insurance, no life insurance, no money. 
total insanity, you know? But the fact is, is that you have no security, (laughs) but you didn't feel that way. I felt like I had no security, but I denied it because I was so profoundly steeped in spiritual rhetoric Mm. from such an early age because my father was this awakened teacher and he really was an awakened teacher. But the problem is, is that being an awakened teacher when you have no money, no real like life security, like simple things like food in the fridge and like life insurance and health insurance, simple mm-hmm. things that I today regard as very important. He didn't because he was really like, it is all just a metaphysical madness we must surrender to. And I'm this little kid being like, yes, it is metaphysical madness. But the real little Biet was like, I want fucking food in the fridge. I want a house with like a white picket fence. I want a mom. Mm-hmm. You know, I want someone to brush my hair. I want, I want like warmth and I want my only comfort in the whole world to not only be television and food, which is all I had back then. Right, know? right. And your dad was actually a doctor back in Russia, right? A, oh, sorry, yeah. a medical, medical doctor, doctor, right. So medical doctor turned yeah. awakened shaman. Correct, yeah. But really, so, like I can't even imagine that person who you just described saying all those things as a doctor. Like doctors are just like, those things don't exist, you know? <laughs> They're, doctors are usually black and white. He was that. He was an atheist, like atheist Marxist medical doctor living in Russia when he had, uh, he acquired tuberculosis and then through a series of events moved to the woods of Russia and cured himself of tuberculosis using Ayurveda, Hatha yoga and studying the Torah and like fourth way wisdom. And so then he was like, I don't believe in any of this bullshit. And everything became about this metaphysical like you know, you know, when your life's been saved and you've had a white light experience in the woods of Russia, like you're kind of done with the old days. Right. So uh, you and your dad were very close, right? Yeah, we were besties. I heard you say in, in another podcast that I've heard you on before that he knew when he was going to die and how. Is that true? That's what he said. But he refused to tell me when because he didn't want to upset me. But the year of his death, mm-hmm. every time I saw him, which was like every week, he was like, you know, I won't be here very long. He said it over and over. And I was on a lot of heroin mm-hmm. at the time. So I wasn't like really listening. But when he died, I was like, he's been telling me this all year. Right. So I, I want to get to the, the heroin and the addiction kind of next. But you've, you lost your mom, your whole family. All you have left is your dad. Your dad says, I know when I'm going to die. And how did that make you feel? Because I don't think anyone listening has a parent that has said that. I mean, I feel pretty confident with that statement. So how did that make you feel? I felt so lucky to have a father who was like Yoda, who like knew things and was tapped into a world that was unprovable. And what I loved about my father was that he taught me how to have faith. He showed me he was a living example of faith. Like Again, he didn't have life insurance, health insurance. And speaking of which, when I had a seven pound tumor in my uterus at the age of 24 and was hauled off to the hospital... At that time, and I had this crazy near-death experience. I don't know if I've ever talked about it on a podcast, but I had these visitations every night where I was like swarmed with these shadowy feelings and, and visuals. I wasn't on drugs right. and I, nothing was weird. I was, and I'm not someone who has hallucinations generally. It was very out of character. And the voices was telling me, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're dying. Mm. And I sat up in my bed one night and I said, am I going <laughs> to die? And the, vo- and the voice said, yes, you are going to die. And I was like, well, I don't want to die. What can I do to not die? And the voice said, you can stop eating. I was like, stop eating what? And they're like, everything. (laughs) And I was like, 
Okay. <laughs> so I stopped. No, this is crazy because I'm like also a big foodie, but I stopped eating for three oh weeks. Gosh. I stopped eating. Like I ate a few cucumbers here and there, but I was, and I'm not anorexic, don't have a history of any of that. I just gen- genuinely believed that this voice right. was true. And I started to, you know, hallucinate. I was having, what do you call it? When protein deficiency, I was like seeing things. I thought I was communicating with God. And one day after three weeks, I lost about like, I don't know, 15 pounds. I'm not someone who's ever really weighed themselves very often, but I lost a bunch of weight and my little tummy was gone. And I looked down and there was a huge bump on my belly, like huge. And I come into the bedroom and show my father and my father's like, well, you are either three months pregnant or it is a very big tumor. It was almost like an Arnold Schwarzenegger moment, you know? And he was like, I'm going to call my friend who's a famous OBGYN. We call him now. I saved his life. He will help us. So this like my dad saved a famous OBGYN's mm-hmm. life, some like, you know, Jew from Long Island and was like, of course. And so this guy like snuck me into the VIP ward of a Long Island hospital and carved a seven pound tumor out of my uterus so that I could have children. Magical. Almost. I mean, what a story. <laughs> Wait, how old were you? Because of faith, like 24. Because of faith, you said? Well, my fa- what I'm saying is my father didn't, we didn't fucking have health insurance. Got it. Got it. He was just like, if something goes awry, I tap into God and that is all that is necessary. And that was kind of how he flowed, you know? So he taught me that. And I, I love that my dad was such a, you know, he was a beautiful weirdo. And for all his flaws as a human being, and all of us are flawed, but he was really flawed. He was so wonderful. Well, the reason I asked that question about your, you know, your dad and how it made you feel about him knowing when he was going to die and, and how I think I expected you to say that it made you scared all the time, like you were going to lose him at any moment. But it it was like the opposite. It's just like, I love my dad. And I think you've been spiritual since you were born with your dad as your dad. I mean, you've been doing things that were people listening maybe have not even tried yet. So approaching death from the way your dad did is so opposite. And maybe I'll just say anti-American because that's the only culture that I know. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess I would say that it's a cultural thing, the way we're really afraid of death and and aging, myself very much included. And I feel Mm. like we live on earth pretending like it's not going to happen and then we're kind of shocked when it does and I don't know it's like this weird thing but it's it's so interesting for your dad to say I know when I'm gonna be and be okay with that right your dad was just like matter of fact about it and then your reaction it it almost it makes you present when you just accept that death is part of life but like mm-hmm. that's so natural to you. And I don't know if you realize how unnatural that is to most people. Well, to be fair, I, I am very unusual and I'm not going to deny that. But <laughs> I also really suffered very, very, very much. I was very, very afraid of death because everyone died in my family. Because you have to understand, if you're six years old and your mom drops dead, like out of nowhere, she had pancreatic cancer, she was like alive, then she was kind of dead. And then two weeks later, her mom died of cervical cancer. And I remember my father was on the phone, like booking a a funeral. And I said to him, didn't we just do that? And he was like, oh yeah, your grandma's dead. I mean, it was so shocking that I got to the point where I didn't live a day 
without spending 50% of that day thinking I was about to that die. That you were about to like, die. That was my, yeah, my nervous system was uh-huh. under this very intense, like if I took the subway, I thought someone was going to push me on the tracks. If I was sitting on the subway and I saw a strange guy get on, I was like, he's a bomber. Like I just had these crazy thoughts and it really wasn't the last about four years that I've rewired my thinking so that I don't live in this constant terror. But, you know, my grandmother was in World War One, she was six years old, and her father, my great grandfather, was shot in the head in Ugh. front of her eyes for being a Jew. And she ran in front and said, Kill me instead. And they pushed her aside and shot him in the head in front of her face. And she told me that story over and over when I was under the age of five. So, like, I'm just like crazy traumatized from fear when it comes to death. So, while I have and always have had this very spiritual understanding of death on a physical and on a nervous system level, I actually have suffered quite a bit of trauma when it comes to terror. And my brother, who's my only living relative, when he calls me today, I'm still, my first thought is, who Mm -hmm. died? And there's no one left to fucking die anymore, but I'm still like, (laughs) wait. And then I'm like, is he calling me to tell me he's dead? Like, who's, who died? You know, and I pick up the phone, I'm always like, who died? I had an ex-boyfriend and while we were together, we lost his brother. I was not with my boyfriend at the time when he called to tell me. But I mean, up until very recently, I still get it. It still comes back sometimes. Every time that phone rings, my brain goes there. So, you know, I had one experience one time, one day at age 20 something, all of yours under age, a lot of it under age six, of course you're going to be wired to like run for lack of a better word. Well, yeah. And then when my ex-boyfriend brought my dead baby to me and said, she's not breathing. Okay. So let's, let's, you know, let's that, go there. About that let's moment, go, let's go there. Uh, so the, the loss didn't end there. Let's go to addiction first. Cause what, what phase did the heroin or was the heroin addiction or the drug addiction because of all the fight or flight that you were constantly in? I believe so. Yeah, I think I had an addiction to fight or flight. And drug use is really like, you know, a more enhanced version of that. It gives you like the very high highs. It gives you the very low lows, right? So it's just when I really reflect on it, because now I've been sober for almost 12 years. In January, I'll have 12 years sober. And I'm not sort of sober. I'm not ayahuasca sober. Like I'm That includes alcohol as well, right? No alcohol, no pot, nothing. 12 years. And I just, yeah, like I had to find tricks, right? I had to find, because I'm someone who loves that sexy five in the morning, like high feeling. So I've created a whole, you know, lifestyle slash business around making people feel that and myself also feeling that. But um, yeah, I got into drugs for that reason. And then uh, what, sure. I know your daughter, let's, let's talk about her for a moment. Not, not baby yeah. cash. It was after the tumor. So I had the two seven pound tumor removed and my doctor said to me, this guy who's snuck me into the hospital. And he said, listen, if you don't have a kid within two years, this tumor comes back and you're going to have to have a hysterectomy and there's nothing I can do about it at that point. So I'm not going to be able to do this Frankensteinian shit again. He was like, if you have a kid in two years, you'll be fine. Two years to the day I get accidentally pregnant. So with a boyfriend. Well, you can call him a boyfriend. He was okay. something. He was like some crazy person that I was hanging out with during my drug Got phase. it. Crazy and talented, yeah. but crazy. And so he um, got me pregnant. And then uh, I went to the doctor and he was like, listen, you have to have this kid because if you don't, I'm going to have to literally give you like a 
C-section surgery right now to cut this out. Like you just, he's like, you're not a normal woman anymore. You've had this like Frankensteinian stuff happening to your uterus. Like you have to have this kid. And so I'm like 26 years old. I wasn't ready to become a mom at all, but I got dry, which is what we call dry in this, you know, sober world. Dry meaning like I didn't do drugs, but I was miserable. Mm. I really wanted mm. to do drugs because I had no tools for living whatsoever. Oh, I like that term. And so I did that and um, I had the baby, perfectly healthy baby. And then four months later, she died of sudden infant death syndrome in the care of this guy, the boyfriend. Mm. And he brought her to me dead. And I tried to give her CPR and my dad tried to give her CPR because we lived with my father at the time. So your father knew Ula. Yeah. yeah. He watched her all the time. And, you know, he was he was her grandpa. Was that loss completely different than the others? Well, I guess at that point it was just your mom, right? You had lost your mom when you were and your grandma. My mom and all four grandparents. And yeah, at that point, this was the next death, I think, after that. And um, no, I don't think I ever felt again after my mom died. I don't think I was like fully capable. Uh I think actually it's only in sobriety that I've been able to return to allowing myself to feel anything. Did the loss of your daughter cause you to return to drugs? Very much so, yeah. And how long did that go for? Well, it went for another about three years, I think. And during that time, my house burnt down, my best friend hung himself, and my dad died of a heart attack. And how old are you then? I, I was 28 when my dad died. And so from 24 to 28, all those things happened. 26 to 28, yeah. <laughs> is there is there ever a moment in that? I mean, I, I wish people could see your face right now because like <laughs> you're so, I, I, I said this in the Instagram live that we did, is most people would be pummeled by the waves that keep hitting you. You know, you stand up, a wave comes, you stand up, a wave comes. And I'm not going to say you've learned to surf it beautifully and, you know, you're just this effortless surfer on this beautiful island because I know you and I know that you're still very much riding the waves. But I would say you're you're able to ride really big waves at this point because of what you've endured. For sure. Yeah, I think so. So uh, what we didn't mention is that you're I did mention in the beginning, you have an amazing voice. Like I listen to you on Spotify all the time. Is that you or is that your? Oh, I was going to say it's me. I'm still learning to actually accept that I'm really very, very good at that. It's very painful for me. I've had a lot of pain around the art stuff. And I'm just now starting to come out of that closet. What does that mean? Pain around the art stuff? Like, I felt like a fraud, like, because I'm so good at singing and, and it's so beautiful, the music I make, and it hasn't really been recognized yet. Like, I think it's like Grammy levels of mm-hmm. good. And then I'm like, I've gotten almost no recognition for it. I'm famous as a spiritual teacher. I'm a best-selling author. And yet no one seems to be getting the fact that I made this amazing music. And so I think for a long time, I felt ashamed about it. Like I felt like, hey, I make music. It's kind of like cheesy, like Phil Collins or Coldplay, but it's really, really good. You know, like check me out, you know? And now I'm just like, fuck it. I've had a fear my whole life that I'm not a real artist. Really? Yeah, because my music is kind of like, I don't want to say cheesy, but it's like, it's just not cool to me. Like, I feel like my music is so like, it's like- Are we talking about the same music? Your music is really cool. Yeah, it's like, 
No, it's so cheesy. Yeah, it's, it feels like I'm like, I feel like when I listen to my own music, I'm like, this is like Phil Collins or Enya okay, or something. For anyone listening, disregard what she's saying and go listen yourself because it's nothing like Phil Collins or Enya. It's, I, can't, I can't even describe it to be anything else because it really, it takes you to another dimension. And I mean, I love Phil Collins and Enya, but like, they don't take me to those places. Aww, and it's not just because no, I know you. you. There's, there's real magic coming through there but it's interesting that you say you weren't recognized because you were signed to sony at 19 so where is i was where does this idea that you're like first of all you should know that recognition does not mean you're good at something i mean take a look at instagram where some of the most talentless people have millions of followers i'm just going to do the opposite for a second you know especially in a world i mean plenty of people have things to deliver but there's a lot of talentless people that get a big applaud i think is what i'm trying to say right yeah totally i think you know the universe or god or whatever you want to call that that source right gives us a dose it kind of gives us a dose and like my ego because i got signed to sony at 18 and i've been of the belief that i am destined to be a famous artist from a very early age and year after year after year after year that kind of didn't happen even the sony deal kind of like dwindled and i turned into a mm. junkie so like i came to the belief that like universe or source was giving me a life of failure in that regard as a gift that like something i just needed to like accept or whatever but i think it has to do with me i think it's what there was an underlying belief that i'm not a real artist or that like that's what real artists are like like if i saw someone who was like a famous singer being interviewed i'd be like oh that must be nice like <laughs> being recognized for your art you know do you think it's because you were kind of living this like dual life in and you were in Queens, right? Growing up where you were yeah. actually poor, but arts were around you in some way. Do you think it stems from from that? It might. Yeah. Like that felt like a real painful thing because I looked at people who were like being recognized in the art scene and I saw them as people who had the privilege of having those family connections and like they grew up in Tribeca mm. and like their their parents did X, Y, and Z for a living. Meanwhile, I was mm. like <laughs> living in like ramshackalack, like madness. Mm. And so I was like, I'm really talented. So I'd be like, hey, I'm really talented too. I'd be like hanging out with whoever at a party and not to name names and be like, hey, I'm really talented too too and and they'd be like i don't care because like in their mm -hmm. world they recognized a frequency mm -hmm. and i did not have that frequency at well that time. said and also more than recognize i think when people have access to go far they're very threatened by what comes naturally to someone so you were there because of your talent and gifts and some of the people maybe had a leg up. And so you're a real threat because you had no leg up yeah. and you ended up in the same exact place. Yeah, eventually. Not so eventually. But also keep in mind, I mean, it took, it took a keep in mind longer, the yeah. craft that you curate. You know, you've spent a lot more time now on your meditation and your spirituality. And so that's what the world sees. I think whether yes. you want to pursue music or not, that's up, that's up to you. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve 
with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Paid by up-level rewards. Paid participation required at your portrayal. Attention all listeners. Are you ready to earn $750? Well, get ready because I'm about to introduce you to GetMy750.com, the ultimate way to earn. Here's the scoop. Instead of just streaming shows or playing games on your phone for nothing, you have the chance to earn additional cash. That's right. From trying out new subscriptions to playing your favorite mobile games, you can get extra cash in your pocket. Simply sign up at GetMy750.com and follow the instructions to start earning immediately. So, what are you waiting for? Turn your favorite apps into real cash with GetMy750.com. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to earn rewards for things you're already doing on your phone. Check out GetMy750.com today. That's right. Get started right now at GetMy750.com. Just go to GetMy750.com or Google Get My 750 Cash. Follow the simple instructions and get your $750. That's GetMy750.com. GetMy750.com. So I know when your dad died, I think I read it in an article that you wrote that you were washing the dishes and you were really mad and you said to God or whoever you talked to, I'm so mad and I never want to feel like this again. I don't know if you remember writing this because maybe it came from a different place. Okay, you remember writing it. And then you said that a voice in your head said, yes, you do, honey. You want to feel this again. Can you explain what that means in case it's not clear to anyone? It was like the sound of like, it felt like a black woman's voice, the way it was spoken to me at that moment. It was just like, yes, you do, girl. Girl, yes, you do. Like, I just pictured this like large black woman, like telling me like it is at that moment. But I heard her. I heard her. And I wonder if sometimes that if it was me coming to myself from the future mm. to b- relay a message. But I saw in that moment, I was single at the time and I didn't have, you know, my life was a total disaster. I didn't have income. I didn't have anything. And I saw that if I was going to go through life never feeling like this again, I would have to be alone forever. And I could see that if I opened my heart up in that moment, that I was going to be able to fall in love and find the man of my dreams. And at that time, that was very important to me for anyone who's listening who's single. I really, really wanted that. I really wanted to find the man of my dreams. And I do believe it was because of that moment that I was the kind of person who was open to that. The juxtaposition there is with love comes pain. So if you never want to feel pain again, you're also never going to feel love again. 
And so, you know, that's again, that's what this podcast is inspired by. Are you going to soften and open your heart in life's hardest moments or are you going to let it close and grow bitter and kind of get in your own way and not get through life with as much joy that could be if it were open? So that was just such a profound statement. And for that voice from within you to remind you, you know, in that moment, there's always this voice for you that comes at really critical moments. It's so amazing. I wonder if we all have that voice or if you're just listening to it better more or what that is. I think we all have it for sure. And, and I wasn't always listening to it. I was telling it to go fuck itself until the age of 29. <laughs> like I was just like, I don't care what you have to say. It would say things, you know, like, maybe you shouldn't do heroin, you know? And I'd be like, go fuck yourself, you know? And be like, maybe you should, you know, whatever it had to say. And I was like, I'm doing the best I fucking can right now. Like I am really doing the best I can. So after Ula died and you returned to drugs, uh, you're, you're a full yeah. addict again. And then your dad dies. Did you only get sober after your dad died or was it before? It was after. It took a year from the time that he died to the moment that I got sober. It was an entire year. It was probably the worst year of my life. Okay. And then were you just dry as you called it or are you entering a new stage of sobriety? No, 29, I got sober. It was like, it's interesting because, you know, you and I have spoken a lot about my food issues or food journey. I wouldn't call it issues anymore. I would say it's journey. Body body issues more than food, just to be clear. Yeah. Well, now it is. It used to be food and body. Now it's just, it's got like, so I've gotten an evolution there, but to be clear, like heroin was something I did. And then I kicked it in two days, like Ray Charles in a room. You know what I mean? Like I cold Turkey and that was it. I never touched it again. I never drank again. It was like, and I was interesting because I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day and she said, wasn't that hard in the first few years? And I was like, no, it wasn't hard. It was like the grace of the universe came down and just swept that problem away and it was gone forever. So that's why I was very confused by the food thing because the food stuff and body hatred stuff has gone on for 28 years. And to be fair, I've only really been able to truly work with it for the last three years or so. But still, I was like, three years? Let's get this going. You know, like I'm so used to like instant transformation and like Beethoven's ninth comes on and people are like waltzing me down a red carpet. Like, how did she do it? And I was waiting, I was waiting for the food thing to be like that too. And instead it's just been like, the exact opposite. It's been like going through swamp water and like rubbing mud all over my tits and being like, what is happening? Like, why won't this end? Because you can't cold turkey food. You have to figure out how to relate to it and your body, which is always changing as a woman, as a mom. You're now, you know, you you have a a baby girl who's, I think, two, just turned two. I mean, food with a static body is a lot different than cold turkeying heroin, right? Yeah. What allowed you to find sobriety in a new way? Different than when you were dry, when you just weren't using, but there was no life Mm. to enjoy, right? That's how you describe dry? Yes. Yeah. And well, dry is just, you're just holding on for dear life. You're like, I just got to not drink. I got to just not drink. But you're not like, yay, sobriety. Like definitely. How did you make that important transition over to sobriety? So a couple things. One, I was actually using the law of divide. So I've been studying fourth way, like the stuff in my mm-hmm. book for my whole life. So I was like, okay, I'll use the law of divided attention, which is one of the first laws in my book, which is a tool for meditating at all times. I was using that to go above myself and float and see myself from above. And at that time I was a full on daily heroin and cocaine user. And I was working with a spiritual teacher at the time. And I remember. So while you were on heroin and cocaine, you were still actively spiritual. 
because that's all you know yes. as life. Your dad taught you um, this thing called fourth way, which could you just briefly describe that? Because it was not something I really had heard of before your book. Fourth way is enlightenment for a person who's in the world. So it's like in like a tools for enlightenment while you're still buying real estate and getting married and like maybe getting Botox, like shopping at Barney's, like whatever it is you're doing, you can do those things and also find enlightenment. It's very different from the path of the yogi or the monk where you're like, I no longer associate with those things. Those are not my interests. Got it. Okay. So all the while doing heroin and cocaine, you are also using the fourth way techniques? Yeah. I mean, in a, in a half-assed way, I, I would say that nothing in my life was fully devotional until I got sober. Mm. I did what I could, you know, because I knew it was who I was. And like, really, it's interesting because when I became a spiritual teacher, I remember telling people, oh, I'm a spiritual teacher. And they were like, yeah, duh. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like people who'd known me my whole life were like, you've always been that. Like, that's who you are. Like, that's why we come to you at three in the morning and knock on your door and you make us a cup of tea and solve all our problems. I'm like, now I'm just going to charge fuck tons yeah. of money for it. But before that, I was just doing it for free. It's just who I am. You know, I just make people feel really good. Well, you provide tools that people yeah. don't have like this divided attention. I love divided attention because I have been doing it for the past seven years without having a word for it. So when I read that oh, in wow. your book, I was like, oh, this is a thing. Yeah. So can you explain it? Yeah. It's just floating above yourself in third person and allowing yourself to see yourself the way the universe sees you, see yourself fully and truly see the bridge of your nose, the way your eyes look when you're gazing, the way your lips look as they take a bite of the sandwich, like whatever it is to truly be there for it. And the reason why we do this is to start to see ourselves as we really mm. are. And the gift of it is if you really use this tool, you start to see that you're a monster. <laughs> Right. Like I was like, oh, wow. Like, oh, wow. I'm a junkie. Uh -huh. You know, so I just saw myself. I was working with a spiritual teacher at the time, too, who said to me, she was just like, hey, you know, like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I was like, well, married with kids and like rich with like an amazing career. And she was like, OK, great. She's like, so do you see that happening with daily cocaine and heroin use? And I was like, hmm, wait, what? And I was like, are you saying that if I do heroin and cocaine every day for the next 10 years, that's not the way my life is going to look? And she was like, yeah, I, I doubt it. <laughs> and it just kind of hit me from a place of vanity. Like I was like, I'm going to be 40 and I'm going to be like a heroin and cocaine user if I don't drop dead. So interesting when you first said like float above and notice yourself, I thought you were going to, you know, see yourself as a divine human being. But what you're saying is really <laughs> see yourself, check your mirror yourself. I had Kelsey Patel on the podcast and she talked about being a mirror for each other. But you're saying be a mirror for mm -hmm. yourself, which is like pretty cool to be the one to get you to where you want to go. But you got to be real with yourself to do it. You do. You really. But it's easy to do because if you're if you really do divided attention, the first thing you'll see is those things. You'll see that you lie. You see that you gloat. You'll see that you gossip. You'll see See that you're mean to your partner. You'll see that you say things that don't need to be said. You'll see that you're, you know, overeating. Maybe you'll see that you're undereating. Mm -hmm. You'll see that you're like, you know, not taking care of yourself mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So are you constantly in a state of divided attention? No. 
By no By means. No. Okay. That's really helpful yeah. to know. So your book is amazing because it's called Don't Just Sit There. And I don't even try and help people because I'm not a meditation teacher, but I don't feel that I could properly motivate somebody that says, oh, I just can't meditate or I sit there and I gaze off. And I think that the idea yeah. of meditation is so misunderstood and you saying don't just sit there doesn't mean go walk, right? But what I found it to mean is that people think meditation is something only monks or yogis do. In your book, you say people think that it involves renouncing worldly possessions, living apart from society, thriving in nature. And you literally <laughs> say in your book, I call bullshit. We're here on earth living human life for a reason and we're meant to engage with our day-to-day -day living. So you are bringing what we can comprehend with what we can't comprehend. Was that accepted in the spiritual world to say, I want, I'm not saying you want this, but you know, you gave up, you mentioned real estate, Botox, shopping at Barney's. Was that rejected by your, I don't know, do you have colleagues in the spiritual world? It was like, I grew up, you know, going to ashrams and doing yoga at like the original yoga studios before white girls discovered right. yoga, like where people wore robes and like, it was like slow moving postures and lots of, you know, Kapalabhati pranayama breathing and stuff. And yeah, that was a world. There was, you would enter into the space of integral yoga or Shivananda or whatever it was and you'd enter in and it was very different. There wasn't anyone being like, yeah, last week I had a showing in Chelsea. No, like it was like sh people who talked about showings in mm. Chelsea were over here. People who partied at really cool events at the Tribeca Grand were here. But like the people who were like meditating with incense were here. And so I just was like, why does everyone not get together and stop fucking masturbating themselves so much and like fuck each other, you know, because we all need all this. Like, I just love, I love the glitz and the glamour of life. I love Hollywood. I love the Oscars. I love really expensive brands. There's so many, I, you know, you know this because we co-brand with people all mm -hmm. the time. There's so many brands that try to work with me. I'm like, I'm not touching that. Like, I care very deeply about who I organize myself with because I believe in luxury brands, you know? And so- <laughs> I felt when I started my career as a spiritual teacher, I was like, this is a juxtaposition. Like being someone who's this potty toddy, like bitchy, you know, who could literally like edit things for Vogue because they're so like bitchy, mm -hmm. you know, and then putting that together with someone who's like, yeah, but the meaning of life is this and, and to bring those worlds together. So since then, what have I done? I've done meditation fashion shows. I've done meditation experiences at the Museum of Modern Art with a thousand people. I've done meditation experiences at Sundance Film Festival. You know, these are the, the things that I did. The one hotel you've I partnered believe. with for, for yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, one hotel, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> Levels of luxury there are just- It smells, you know. it's an intoxicating smell when you walk in too. Yeah, because you. I feel like when you go into the one hotel, if you're a normal human being, like you feel like you want to vomit yeah. because you, you just don't even know what to do with that much pleasure <laughs> and beauty. You're like, I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know if I'm worthy of this much pleasure and beauty. Like, someone please give me a seat so I can sit down. You and, know? you know, you don't come off as hoity-toity or like that, you know, 
bitchy Vogue editor, you really bring it all together. And that is your your superpower, which is awesome. But, you know, the interesting thing is that a monk on top of a mountain in blah, 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 of course, he's going to be good at meditating. He has no worldly distractions that we have. So he's not even doing the same thing that we're doing here. And I think that's your point is... Yes, it's easy to meditate in the morning before your baby's crying or your child needs you or the bills come in or the emails start. But can you bring that off the cushion? I feel like that's a big part of what you do that isn't spoken about in the meditation world. I think it's very true. And I come at it from a very musical and Mm. emotional standpoint. Like to me, I want my life to feel like the way a montage feels in a really good film where like the music's going and they're showing you how beautiful this person's winning at life. Do you know what I mean? Those montages mm-hmm. where it's like, dun, 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 mm-hmm. and it's like the person's <laughs> winning. And to me, winning as someone who wins quite often at life, and because I'm a winner, I'm also failing and being rejected and suffering and all that stuff is real too. But I win a lot. And as a winner, I can tell you that winning is actually quite painful. It's very painful because your inner child or the little you who hoped that one day you would accomplish X, Y, and Z is kind of having like a nervous breakdown in those moments, right? Like when you're like killing it at life, there's those voices from childhood telling you you're not good enough, telling you you don't deserve this, telling you um, it's all going to go away or whatever mm-hmm. they're saying. And so winning is actually quite painful. And so to be able to live a life that's really filled with accomplishments, mm-hmm. but to do it in a way that's filled with tranquility requires this beautiful source energy. You cannot do it without it because Lord knows, I mean, it's painful for me and I'm someone who has like a bazillion tools and I have an incredibly spiritual life and I feel amazing most of the time. So can you imagine if you didn't do all the shit that I did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'd be miserable, which is why many celebrities and so on end up harming themselves or like becoming drug addicts to deal with it because it's painful. Right. They're winning. They're doing so well, but they don't get to soak up that feel good feeling because there's this undercurrent of it's all going to go away or they're going to find out that I'm a fraud or an imposter. Is it like that? Yeah. And I think most people live their life in fear of people finding out who they quote unquote really are because they feel like an imposter in so many things that they do. How does meditation help with imposter syndrome? I think it has to do with a lack of like attachment to your achievements, right? And that's why I mentioned the music thing earlier, not to like make myself sound smaller. By the way, I really love Phil Collins and Enya. I just want to make the point that like, I'm sharing this because I don't want to hide parts of myself anymore. I don't want to come out and be like, I'm going to win a Grammy one day. Like, I just know it. I'd rather come out and share what it really feels like Mm -hmm. to be someone who makes such good music and, you know, is maybe will be recognized for it, maybe not. But there's something about the feeling of I'm so relaxed about it now. I don't know if it doesn't matter. I don't know. That's not the right word. But there's just no attachment because my value will not change. Mm. So I'm on a stage winning a Grammy because my music is amazing. That seems pretty obvious to me because my music's Mm -hmm. amazing. But I'm saying there I am. A bunch of people agreed. My music's amazing. I do these huge meditation experiences scored by my music. I finally, I'm on the cover of Vogue. Nothing's going to change. My value won't change because my value is in And what your question is about how does meditation cancel out imposter syndrome? It's like, I know who I am Mm. now. 
I don't need to go see a psychic. I don't need anyone to tell me who I am. I know exactly who I am. And there's no ego in that. And why do you think so many people then resist that work? It's a fuck ton of work. That's why. <laughs> I think that's part of it. And I think also because the groove is really hard to break. If you've been playing the same, you know, I eat Cheetos at 8 p.m. and I watch Friends, if you've been playing the record for like 27 years or 36 years or 47 years, it's hard to stop look at the record, be like, is this really the record that I want on my record player? What if I want a different record? And I think it's really painful because when you see the distance between where you are, like when I was poor, which was very yeah, I was recent. Say, can we talk about how recent for just a sec? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it, I'm losing track of time, but I think it's about seven years. That now, is a you know, crazy that turnaround, seven years. Yeah. To go from like food stamps to being in the 1%. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a different it's a different Okay, thing. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Just thought I, I don't know anybody that has gone like who has done that. Thanks. Well, I no, but I, it's shocking for me too, but there wasn't a lot of resistance. Once I saw the truth, that's another reason why I was so confused by the food thing. Like to go from extreme poverty like that, where you're shoplifting and receiving food stamps and like stealing like yogurts from Whole Foods, which I've made amends for, <laughs> but like... <laughs> Like, you know, just fucking like to go from that level of confusion and, and inability to function in reality to being in the 1% to like having a thriving career to whatever, to go from that shocking. So I just thought the same thing would happen with food. So I just want to mention that to me, what you do and the work around intuitive or mindful eating, like it's because like I've just had zero resistance to things that I think most people would be like. No one gets out of extreme mm -hmm. poverty because they read a few spiritual books and like started keeping spreadsheets, which is basically what I did. I did a lot of cold calls. I mean, I did some weird shit, but the point is, is that it just felt natural. Like I was like, okay, got it. Now I'm becoming like a, an entrepreneurial mogul. Uh, what, Here's what's what going to happen. What happened with these now. cold calls? Just so we could all really understand that you don't go from food stamps to the, you know, the 1% overnight. What is that? What, who did you cold call? Why did you cold call? I made a list of a hundred people that I knew that I thought could benefit from my services, which at that time I had just concocted in my mind. I was like, I'm a meditation guide, spiritual teacher. I came up with this vision. Well, I mean, it was handed to me from within from a meditation, but I was like, all right, I'm going to call a hundred people one by one that I believe of my friends, that I believe could benefit from these services. And I'm gonna offer them these services. And I did that one by one and it was horrifying. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. But ironically, seven out of 10 people wanted to work with me. Wow, that's 70 people, I think. Well, it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it was yeah. over time, yes, yes, yes. right? But, but I know I acquired a full, I went from making like, you know, a thousand dollars a month for a living, you know, from that to like five thousand dollars a month. It's a big change. In like 90 days. And something. I wanted to just highlight that because that is hard work picking up the phone. And for every three people that isn't interested, that's Oof. right. And that could be Ow. three in a row. It hurt. And you persisted and you kept going with, you have many talents, but one talent from within. And it landed you here. And I just think that's that's really beautiful. So one more heavy question. And you kind of touched on yeah. it for a moment, but I really related to you when you said something and in different words is how I translate it. But you said you're addicted to your sympathetic state or you were addicted oh. to your sympathetic state. So I think first 
let's talk about sympathetic versus parasympathetic. Just real quick, how do you define the two? Uh, sympathetic is like nervous energy, hyper, or it can also be depressed because it's it's very polarizing, mm. you know, so it's like one or the other. But uh, I think sympathetic state is one of fear, of anxiety, of excitement, mm -hmm. of drama. Sympathetic is also one of like overwhelm. That's another example. Of and then on the other side, parasympathetic would be what? Parasympathetic is presence. It's very, it's a, lis a listening ear. Mm. It's peace. It's equanimity. It's delight. Mm. It's pleasure. And uh, it's it's calm. Like you feel, and safety. Yeah, you're, even you describing it kind of puts me in a parasympathetic state. So to be yeah. addicted to the sympathetic, when I heard you say that, it reminds me of something I said on my Instagram story stories once. And there's a handful of times where I've said something seemingly random on my Instagram stories. And the outpour of people that have never DM'd me before, me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. And I said, I grew up wow. addicted to chaos. And I feel like it's the same thing, different language. Same. And people who maybe don't understand who are not or or grew up in a more peaceful setting might think, why would you be addicted to something so, you said drama, you know, up and down? So how did you escape that? Or how do you escape that? I'm still in the process, you know, but it's gotten a lot easier. I just had to get real with what I was so identified with because I felt like the things that made me such a powerful artist and such a powerful thinker and such a brilliant philosopher and all these things was that stuff. And so to me, they were compounded in one area. And I had to start ripping them apart and keep like, okay, I'm a brilliant artist over here. I'm a brilliant philosopher over here. And how much pain and drama and chaos is in my life has nothing to mm -hmm. do with that. And it was painful. It took years to really brace myself because there was a part of me that felt like I was going to become like Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, who I believed my whole life was very boring. I was yeah. just like, is he really still talking about tying yeah. shoes? Like it's been like 20 <laughs> minutes, you know? But but that is who I've had to become on some level. And it's not quite like that. You know, I, I found that I'm still funny and I'm still myself and I'm still interesting and I'm still quirky. And I think in many ways, you can attest that you're the same way. Like you're very okay. alive and all that, but you're much calmer mm -hmm. now. And I think I just thought that the calmer I got, and the more good things I did for myself and the more self-care I gave myself that I was going to turn into this weirdo loser. That you couldn't also be the philosopher and spiritual teacher and singer-songwriter, right? Because when you were describing the artists who live with so much pain, it's like they were not able to separate the two, no. right? They, they had to bring the drama with the good stuff. So I think when we are yeah. able to separate the two and say, oh, we're, it's actually allowed to feel good for just a moment. It's, I'm allowed to feel safe yeah. here. Things start to really shift. And to your same point, if I had an Instagram account when I was old me addicted to chaos, I would have 4 million yeah. followers and I would not right. trade what I have now for that any step of the way, you know? Totally. Because totally. I, I had so much going at all times and I was so fused, but I don't want that. I'd rather have peace and less of everything than all yeah. of that. 
I'm with you 1000. And I think that's evidenced by your your fiance who I'm sorry, husband. I don't know why I said fiance. <laughs> your husband of many Wait, once yeah, hu- once fiance. Your husband and your daughter and a life that you're living. And it's not, you know, rock and roll as it once was, which probably pains you a little cuz I think that was a part of your identity. But it's beautiful. I think it's more rock and roll oh. today than it was back then, you know, because to me, it's like, yeah, I have the the security of like making a lot of money and I have the security of beautiful homes that well, we don't have our own home because like a series of insanity yeah. and now COVID, another but, fire. But we live in beautiful homes. Yeah, another whatever. The point <laughs> is, is that, you know, I wasn't chaotic, you know, when I found out that my house burned down. The, the moment it happened, I said, you know, God, universe, like, what are you trying to show me? And I immediately saw the vision, like I saw the download. But I just want to say my, my life is more rock and roll today because I think there's nothing more rock and roll than actually becoming at, like people, everyone wants what we have, like to be at peace with life, to feel good, to, to radically take on practices that I once thought were difficult, but today I see them as restful and opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Like today I see an hour of Pilates or soul cycle as like an opportunity. Whereas Mm. just a few years ago, I was just kind of like, oh, I got to do that just so I can be skinny. You know, it's like, that is not the way I see life. And you said something earlier that you thought of about the nun. Can you elaborate on the nun? Well, I've been struggling with the food and body dysmorphia for 28 years, you know, and it's starting to get a lot easier these days, but it's still like a process that I'm still unraveling. And one of the latest pieces is just being like not completely at peace with what my body actually looks Mm -hmm. like. And whether that be childhood trauma or whether that be, you know, cosmic consciousness, finding pockets of fat on my body. Like, I don't know. All I know is that I've been struggling with that. And there's days when I'm like, I have memories where I will be like on a beach or at a lake and I'd see people who were fit and thin. And the jealousy that I felt of like, why did God make me look like this when other people are tall and thin and whatever I've been taught is beautiful. And in the midst of all this, I was texting with a friend of mine. You know, I had to text with a few friends that I feel are very, very like clear in this world. You're one of them. Another one of them is Lula. And I texted with Lula and she was like, well, I had to kind of become like a monk when it came to my body and food. I had to kind of become like a monk. And I was kind of like, what does that mean? And I just took it into meditation and I started to imagine myself dressed as a nun. Not like a nun who's like Catholic and angry and cray cray, but like a nun who's devoted their life to God, like truly devoted their life to God. And I imagine this nun taking their nun costume off at the end of the night and their beautiful naked body underneath this nun costume and thinking like, would this nun then look at their body and be like, you're disgusting. It's like, no, this is a body that is devoted Mm -hmm. to God. And so how could it be anything but beautiful? And then the next day I was riding SoulCycle because I have an at-home SoulCycle bike. And I was looking at the teacher and my old thinking was like, well, she's a little fat here. She's a little fat there. And I caught myself and I was like, now put her in a nun costume. Mm. Like, can you, would you judge her the same way if she had devoted her life to God? And I was like, no, I wouldn't. And so I just started playing this game where like whenever I had evil, nasty thoughts about my body or other people's bodies, I just put us in nun costumes Mm. and we're like, and I could hear the angelic music and this beautiful like, you know, like this body is devoted to God. Like I can't do this to my little body anymore. I can't keep beating her up because of some shit that happened when I was a little girl. 
I love that. And it's a tool I think we could all use when we need it and to check ourselves when we're judging other people or ourselves. So if you're listening, flag that and use it. <laughs> so you've been through a lot and I kind of struggle to ask this question to certain people and you're one of them. Do you think that everything happens for a reason? I don't just think that. I know that without a shadow of a doubt. I am that. And we all are. And when you just get quiet enough, there's no other truth. Wow. And then the last question, which is fun. If you were a tree, what type of tree would you be? I'm really into the willow, you know? It's a good I love that for like you. the way it, shape, it creates that little cave. And you're you're a mother now for I feel yeah. like it's a very mothering Aww. tree. And it's always by water. They too, are? Which is but yeah, I think that they have to be by water. I do. Am I wrong I don't about know, that? But I like it. About- <laughs> like on a beach water or just somewhere? No, by a lake or something. I think they have to be by water, though. Willows. Okay. We'll, we'll Google. We'll, we'll have Google to Google it. that. We'll Google I, I, just so you know, my husband makes fun of this quite often. I make stuff up all the time. Like, I literally believe some yeah. facts because someone told me something when I was nine, and I'm like, oh, yeah, willows. They grow near water. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, the, where did you, true. what are you like? The, he's, he always calls me the scientist. He's like, oh, is the scientist present I right heard now? something funny that I heard you say on a podcast that when you were high on heroin, you would say these like very profound things, but they made absolutely no sense. And people like wanted to know what you were saying, but like you'd go from A to Z back to Y and then you got clear and you were able to like connect the dots a bit. Yes. <laughs> so we... Yeah, that was my, my best friend said that to me. He was like, you were the craziest person I'd ever met. He's like, nothing you said ever made any sense at all. He's like, and then one day you just made more sense than anyone I'd ever met. He was like, you went from that to that, like in overnight. You have so much wisdom to give the world, but put a little heroin and cocaine on it. And there's still wisdom, but you can't decipher what the code is. So then enter sobriety and meditation. And you're able to not just articulate, but give us a process. Your book is a process to go through, a step-by-step process. And that's what so many people need to grasp things that are very different than everything else we've been taught. So I'm so glad that you're living your truthiest life. And thank you for being an amazing guest. Thank you. Okay, well, that episode was a lot, a lot, a lot. Biet is clearly a magnificent human being with so much talent to offer this world. And she is putting on a two-hour workshop at the end of the month. I'm going to put that all in the notes below. She also gave me a code that you can use that gets you 25 bucks off. This is really for, I think, somebody who has meditation experience. It's a pricier event, but I have experienced Biet's magic in meditation and she really is powerful. So I'll say this again. This is for the person that's very serious about, you know, spending two hours in a deep workshop with their emotions and getting to know their shadows and all their traumas. And it is a little bit pricey. So it's going to be for somebody who wants to really invest in themselves and, of course, can invest in themselves in this way. So I'm going to put the code and the link for that below. Check it out if you're interested. And I'll see you next week on The Truthiest Life. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. 
Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. During the Right Rug Flooring Hello Summer Sale, you'll find savings throughout the store, all backed by the right price guarantee, including carpet with a lifetime stain warranty, only $159 installed with pad. That's right, $159 includes expert installation as soon as tomorrow. Visit rightrug.com, R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com to find a showroom near you or schedule a free in-home shopping appointment. Say hello to summer and save. Right Rug Flooring, right here, right now. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.